as you do, I encourage you to pull out your bulletin or, of course, the Bible, which is underneath the seat uh, that you're sitting in. And you can also follow along on the screen. We have two scripture passages this morning. The first is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And the second from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Hear now God's word, beginning in Luke 18, 15 to 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You were here last week. What an amazing celebration. Amen? Amen. Uh, We normally have, at least leading into our time, you know, getting into the building, uh, we averaged around 350 people on a, on a Sunday, and uh, last Sunday, there were 791 people here, and it was just, I, that wasn't quite enough, church. Can I get another, like, let's give a hand to the Lord? Thank you. Thank you. Here are some shots, and um, we, have, we have coffee. Did you notice that? So here's, here's a couple, there, yes, um, in fact, uh, we, we are partnering with Silverbridge Coffee, which uh, Sarah Walker is the uh, member of our church, helps lead our youth, and her parents own that um, coffee company, and uh, uh, coffee apparently is really good because there were 1,476 ounces of coffee consumed here. That's 123 cups of coffee. And listen to this. This is just a microcosm of what people have done through the process of working through, like being mobile and then coming into this building. Um, the, The coffee maker that we purchased, the heating element was broken. It didn't work. So Sarah Walker... Uh, brewed the coffee at the warehouse in Worthington and brought it over here and we ran out and so she went back and brewed more and then brought it back for after acoustic. And that's just, that's amazing. So uh, that's one example of so many people who did so much to make last Sunday happen. We also had the very first ever NAPC tailgate (laughs) last Sunday. I don't know if you knew this. There was an actual tailgate and 
This picture, I love this picture, and I want to break it down for you because John Fixeri is flipping the pancakes. And if you see, he said that he credits his technique to his time playing lacrosse. And you can see there the, the <laughs> pancake midair. And then this is my favorite part. Madeline O'Rourke is just, she's going to be an athlete. Look at that focus. Look at that, that hand-eye. Like, it's, it's pretty impressive. So... All of that is to say, it was uh, quite an incredible Sunday. Amen? Amen. And what do, we, what do we say to that? We, uh, man, onward. We, we are moving ahead with our mission. And that brings us to um, today's texts. And I, I am going to shift to a very important and clear moral issue of our time and a critical application of the word of God to our time. And, and that topic is protecting the lives of the vulnerable and particularly the unborn. Now, I want to say from the very beginning, uh, we are people from all different kinds of backgrounds and perspectives and experiences. There are people in this room who are worshiping with us for the very first time or maybe the second time ever. And so... I know that there are going to be uh, probably many different perspectives on this topic here in this room. And one of the things you, you might ask me is, David, why would, you, why would you bring a topic like this up on week two of opening the building? And the reason actually relates to, I, I shared this last week, that we, um, we think that the, the, the text that I preached on last week of the woman at the well is a wonderful, aspirational um, text for us as Christians. We want to be like Jesus, and we want to welcome people no matter who they are. And we also want to speak the truth. And so this morning's text is actually another representation of who we are as a church. I, I want to remind us that one, maybe the most important aspect of our identity is that we believe that this book is true. And... We believe that all of it is true. There are some parts of this book that are really going to resonate with people in our culture, and, and uh, we'll get into it. Some of, some of, like, serving the poor is something that no one is against that I'm aware of in our culture. Okay, so that, that really resonates with people. There are other aspects of this book that are absolutely offensive to the, the culture of our day, and so... Why are we doing this? We're doing this because we as elders want to be faithful to the word of God. And uh, there is a particular issue in our, our time that I will get into. But the word of God uh, is, is going to show us the value of human life. And in particular, the value of the vulnerable. And among those who are vulnerable, who would be more so, more vulnerable than those with literally no voice? The unborn. God made them fearfully and wonderfully, just like he made all of us fearfully and wonderfully. And what I want to do this morning is teach what the Bible teaches, and I want to explain how Christians have always held a particular perspective on this topic, that, that babies, born or unborn, are made in the image of God, and therefore in a just society where people are, are going to flourish, they ought to be protected and cared for, and at the very minimum, allowed to live. So let's pray, and then we'll take a look at these two texts. Father, we thank you for bringing us here together. We thank you for this wonderful building. May we use it not to, 
um, to glorify ourselves in any way, not to just so that we can enjoy uh, being in church, but so that we would use it as a mission to the world, so that we would open up our doors to those who are vulnerable and lonely and having a hard time, and that we would, that we would love them and serve them, and that we would share the, the great news of the gospel with the world, and we pray for that. And we pray this morning that you would open our hearts. Holy Spirit, please come and speak to us. I pray for everyone in this room, no matter where they're coming from, Lord, that you would give all of us uh, just a, a sense of your, your presence and your speaking to us through your very word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's, there's three points that I want to lift up from the, the texts this morning. The first one is going to be long. And the second two are going to be less long. And the first one is this. Jesus loves little children and the lowly. Uh, Luke 18, 15 through 17 is a fairly well-known passage. And uh, one of the reasons for that is because it is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's recorded. Now, you may not know this, but in the four biographies of Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're written by different men. And uh, they all describe the events of, of Jesus' life, of course, but they are writing to different audiences, different people, so their emphases are a little bit different. And therefore, when there's a, an event in Jesus' life that shows up over and over and over again, it, it's best to, I mean, we should pay attention to all of it, but, but this is an emphasis that three of the gospel writers decided to put in their biographies of Jesus. That's notable. And so you may have heard this text. Have you ever heard the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You're welcome that I didn't sing that for you. But it was written uh, around the turn of, a century, uh, the turn of the century by a man named Clarence Herbert Woolston. There's a picture of him. And look at that facial hair, by the way. That's a bold call. He was a, he was a, a preacher, a gospel songwriter, and he was also a, um, a tremendously effective minister to children because he was a great magician. And he would do sleight of hand magic and then would bridge that to the gospel. He actually wrote this song. And he wrote it at a time, uh, around the turn of the century, maybe a little bit before, I'm not exactly sure of the date when he um, published it, but he lived 1856 to 1927. And uh, this was during two immensely important events, one a cultural event in America and another one a really important event in, within Protestantism. The first was, of course, the abolition of slavery. And the second was this focus on, uh, from Protestant churches on worldwide missions, on sending people to places where the gospel has not been known. And so you can, you can kind of capture both of those very important themes in, in this song, Jesus Loves the Little Children of the World. And uh, it, it's very faithful to the text that we're talking about. And this text itself is embedded in a part of Luke's gospel where over and over again he is emphasizing the value of the vulnerable. And this great reversal that Christianity brings to the, the entire world, that the high and lifted up, the prideful and the powerful, powerful are going to be, uh, they're, they're going to be taken down a few notches unless they repent. And the lowly and the outcasts 
are lifted up and made valuable. That, that is a recurrent theme. Of course, it, it's captured most clearly in the gospel itself. Who is Jesus? The eternal son of God. What does he do? He takes on flesh and he even submits himself to the cross. And, and so we see that in a microcosm in Luke chapter 18. The first part of Luke 18 is Jesus giving us an example of how we should pray. And who should we be like? We should be like a widow, a persistent widow who just keeps praying and praying. And widows were consummate outcasts. We're supposed to be like the persistent widow. Then he tells a story about prayer. And in that prayer, there's two people praying. One is a Pharisee and the other one is a tax collector. The religious guy, the Pharisee, this is how he prays. God, thank you that I'm so great. Man, I'm glad I'm not like those other people, those sinners. I, I tithe and I do this and I do that. And Boy, thank you. It's good to be me. That's his prayer. The tax collector, the outcast on the other hand, he beats his breast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, who goes away justified? The sinner, of course, because we all ought to pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and so he uses another outcast. Then we come to our text about children. And then to finish the, the chapter, the very next passage is about the rich young ruler, a, a rich young guy, very successful, who comes to Jesus and says, hey, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus says you got to obey the commandments, which all of us have failed to obey the commandments. But this guy says, check, I'm good there. Anything else? And then Jesus says, yeah, one, one more thing. Give away all you have to the poor. Come follow me. And then you'll, you'll have eternal life. You'll have treasure in heaven. And he can't do it. He won't do it. There, there are very few categories of people either then or today that are more, uh, that, that you'd like to be in more than to be a young, rich, successful guy. And he walks away empty. So over and over in the Bible, in the Gospels, in the whole, the whole Bible, there is this theme that the lowly are lifted up and the high and mighty are brought down. And uh, this reversal is happening in the way that Jesus describes children. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And in that day... To be an infant or a child was to also be kind of an outcast. I mean, you, you had very little power. And children were um, maybe valuable in so far as they would help the family business. But other than that, people did not think much of them. And you can see that in the way that the disciples are rebuking those who are bringing children to Jesus. He's too important for this. Leave him alone. And uh, what's really interesting about this, brothers and sisters, is that the word used in verse 15 for infants is the Greek word brephos. And brephos is, if you look it up in the, the Greek um, lexicon, this is what it says. A very small child, even one still unborn, baby, infant, fetus. And interestingly, it's the same word that is used in Luke chapter 1 when Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's also pregnant with a guy named John, who ends up growing up to be John the Baptist. And 
Here's what it says in Luke 1, 41 through 44. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the brephos, the baby, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the brephos, the baby, in my womb leapt for joy. What I want to point out here is that there's no distinction between unborn babies and babies that are born. That the same word is used. And this should not surprise you if you are familiar with the Judeo-Christian tradition. Because the scriptures describe over and over how we are made in the image of God and just how valuable we are as those people who are, who are transcendently given this image of God from the living God to us. And so this happens when, when we are in the womb. And this is repeated throughout Scripture. I'm only going to give you three examples. The first one is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. David says this to God, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Uh, knitted together in our mother's womb. In Job, Job is making his plea before God, and he's saying that he... He actually treated his servant as an equal to him. This is what he says in Job 31, 15 to God. Did not he who made me in the womb make him my servant? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Then one more, Isaiah 44, 2. God is speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. This is to the whole nation of Israel. Nevertheless, it's the same metaphor. Formed you from the womb. Now, like today, this commitment to the unborn is at odds with much of our culture in a culture that, that says that um, we ought to, quote, protect reproductive rights. And we, we might ask a follow-up question, whose rights are we protecting? We certainly are not protecting the reproductive rights of the unborn baby. But in, in that day as well, the, the unborn and the newly born were really dispatched and disposed of as adults wanted. And this is true across all cultures. It was certainly true of the Greco-Roman culture in which the, the Jews lived and then the Christians lived. This is uh, David Lancey, who's a, he's an eminent archaeologist. He says this, among ancient Greeks and Romans... Sickly, unattractive, or unwanted infants were exposed or otherwise eliminated. The Chinese and Hindus of India have, since time immemorial, destroyed daughters at birth to open the way for a new pregnancy and a more desirable male offspring. The Japanese likened infanticide to thinning the rice plants in their patties. Among foragers such as the Inuit, the Javaro, unwanted babies were left to nature to claim. So this is not uncommon at all in the ancient world and I want to be clear 
there is a story out there, there's a false story that the, the, the position that uh, we, we allow moms to choose what they're going to do with their babies is the moderate position, it's the one that's long standing in the West, and that the position that unborn babies have rights that we ought to protect is some radical new perspective you know, by hardline benighted people who want to control women. This is absurd and false. The position that we love unborn children, that we protect them, that we care for them, has been around as long as Christianity has been. Indeed, in the Jewish tradition, it's very, very prominent. And to be clear, it is actually the Christian worldview that gave women themselves the dignity that they deserve by applying this truth that all are made in the image of God universally. The Jewish commitment to the unborn immediately became the Christian commitment to the unborn uniformly and universally. This is a 2,000-year-old position. The Christian view of the human person has shaped Western culture's belief in the value and dignity of all people. And this is indisputable. Historians who are Christians, historians who are atheists all agree with this, and you can see it from the very beginning of Christianity. Not just in the word of God, but in the very earliest writings of Christian leaders this was the case. The Didache is a well-known uh, teaching document from the second century. It says this, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. It's very clear. Tertullian, who was born in 160 AD, is quoted, he's a church father. For we Christians look upon him, a baby, as a man who is one in embryo. For he is in being like the fruit in blossom, and in a little time would have been a perfect man had nature met with no disturbance. Irenaeus, another church father born 130 AD, just as God brings an infant which has been conceived in the womb into the light of the sun and lays up wheat in the barn after he has given it full strength on the stalk, the obvious analogy of the seed that goes in the ground is going to grow up to be wheat in the same way an unborn child that is born grows up to be an adult. I don't know if you know who these, raise your hand if you know who these peeps are. No one? Okay. Uh, I don't blame you. On the left is a guy named Basil. On the right is a guy named Gregory of Nyssa. They're two of the so-called Cappadocian fathers. Cappadocia is not a drink that you can get over here at the bar, uh, at the coffee bar. It is a region in Turkey, and they lived in the 300s. And these men are, are towering influences in the history of the church. In fact, the two of them were both bishops, and they both were in on the Council of Nicaea, which if you know the, count, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed lays out what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, and they were in on it. And so if you contribute to the most important doctrine in Christian history, you've done pretty good work. But their work didn't stop at theology. Um, Basel, the one on the left, he uh, loved those who were sick, and he, he welcomed them. And in fact, he, he had this big building built for the sick, and especially lepers would come, and everybody's afraid of lepers because they didn't want leprosy. He would bring them in and care for them and kiss their foreheads and, and pray over them. And do you know what that became? The, the world's very first hospital. Christians started hospitals. The guy on the right, Gregory of Nyssa, argued that slavery was an abomination and that God's people should always object to slavery because all people are made in the image of God. This was so early. I mean, slavery was an institution like 
I don't know, like for us, um, highways are institutions for, we don't think about it. We don't think about owning a car, we just own a car. And uh, yet Gregory had the audacity and the boldness to argue that, um, that slavery was wrong. And yet, those two brothers, they had an older sister. And that older sister is um, pictured, her name is Macrina. And she's the oldest of nine. And um, she, in, in their words, Gregory and Basel, was the, their most brilliant instructor in Christianity. Do you know what Macrina did, among other things, being extremely devoted to God to make her mark in the world? She would go to the garbage dump. And you know what she would pick up and collect? Babies. She took them into her home and she raised them as if they were her own. She was not married. She never married because she wanted to be single-mindedly devoted to Christ. She would take babies from the garbage dump and she would raise them. Jesus said, let the children come to me. And if you think that is barbaric, that people would do that to babies, think about this for a moment. Those babies at the garbage dump had more chance for life than the anesthetized, clean, hide it from everybody process that we have in our world today of abortion. From the very beginning, Christians have always protected those who were unborn and who were newborn. Why? Why have they done this? Well, it's very simple because God loves the world. God loves the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. How many of you have, have memorized or tried to memorize that? Raise your hand. Many of us have, okay? He loves us so much, God does, the Father sent the Son into the world to become weak and an outcast and die on the cross for our sins. What amazing love. And that love is inextricably tied to the judgment of evil. And it's not often that we read John 3.16... And we continue to read in John 17 and then 18 through 21. In John 3, 17, the beautiful news that God didn't send Jesus to condemn us but to save us. And then it says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You know, Jesus is the most loving man. I said this last week, the most loving man who ever lived, the most loving person who ever lived. And when he goes and he talks to the woman at the well, he is just filled with, like he's, he's trying to urge her to receive living water, but he's not doing that apart from addressing her sin, the way that she's rebelling against God. He does the same with us. He's talking to Nicodemus here, and he does the same thing. That if you want to be in the light, that means you have to come out of the darkness. We cannot receive the love of God unless we acknowledge that we are without hope on our own and that we are stumbling in the dark apart from Jesus. 
that we need the Holy Spirit working in us in order to even want to get out of the dark. And Jesus was saying this, of course, to Nicodemus, this great religious man, and yet he needed to come out of the dark. He actually came to Jesus in, under cover of night at, in the dark. Why? Probably because he didn't want his fellow religious folks to know that he was going to Jesus because he was already a controversial figure. And Jesus says, you've got to come out of the dark if you want the light. And sometimes the light hurts. Have you, have you been in the dark and the light turns on and it hurts your eyes? We, I'm usually the first one up in our household. And I go in the closet and the closet does not have a dimmer switch. It's either on or it's off. So I turn it on and it's like, oh my gosh. And then I get used to it and it's fine. But it's, it, it, it's a metaphor that, that John uses throughout his gospel that Jesus is the light of the world. And the light has shone in the world and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. The way that we receive Jesus is that we repent of sin and we trust in him. And this act of repentance and faith necessarily means that we leave the darkness. We will never do so perfectly, but we will increasingly until we stand before him completely cleansed of all of the darkness in us. Love and light necessarily judge evil and darkness. And because of this, I want to urge you to vote on November 7th and to vote against issue one. You've probably seen ads, and those ads are uh, the ones that, that urge you to vote yes are very, very misleading. In fact, I saw one last night as I was watching the Ohio State football game, and it said that voting yes will keep the you know, extreme. There's no exceptions to abortion in our day, and this is going to protect women. And That's just not true. The law on the books in the state of Ohio, it is 22 weeks and there, there is a heartbeat bill. It's been stayed for years, and it is not the law of the land. And so uh, you might not agree completely with, um, with the, you, you might think that there are exceptions, okay, to this, to this rule of protecting unborn children. I'm telling you that this particular issue will allow for abortion up to nine months, and that is evil. That is not, that, that is dark. Now this is the first time, I, I want to be clear, this is the first time in 19 and a half years of my serving as the pastor of this church that I have ever said anything like this about any voting matter. The reason I'm doing it is that we as elders, as the ruling elders of the church, and I'm the teaching elder, we believe that speaking out about this matter, it is of utmost clear-cut importance as Christians to be faithful. And I have hoped to demonstrate that this commitment to the unborn is a 2,000-year-old moral commitment for Christians. It long precedes anything political in our time. And, you know, there, there is a risk that our culture will go in a direction that will not lead to flourishing. It will lead to destruction of many people, children and moms who, who are weighed down with regret. And, and, and so... It is our calling to do what Proverbs 31 tells us to do. Open your mouths for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. We must protect the powerless and the lowly, Christians. Proverbs 24, rescue those 
who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Now, there is certainly more that we do than vote in a way that causes life to flourish in our state. But it is not less than that. Lastly, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He saves any who would come to him. Anyone who turns to Jesus through repenting and believing in the promises of forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ will be forgiven. Amen? Amen? If you have in some way experienced the brokenness of this world through abortion, you are loved. I want to say it again. If you have experienced the brokenness of this world through the form of of abortion, you are loved. We welcome you. We stand committed to walking with you. You are loved by us. You are loved even more by the God of the universe who stands ready to forgive all who come to him with a childlike, repentant heart and trust in Jesus. He has already forgiven all who have sought forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And our call as a church is to walk with and support people in need, children, be they born or unborn, and their moms and dads. And this call does not end on November the 7th any more than it does after a child is born. And if you are interested in knowing more about what we are doing, Andrea Hayes, who is an elder in our church, is going to be at that back table, the community table in the narthex, and she will be happy to tell you about our life team. And our life team is, we're just getting started, but we are aiming to support foster parents and to support those who adopt and to support moms who need material assistance, who are going to carry through with their pregnancy. And there are other things that we are doing, but irrespective of the outcome on November the 7th, we will continue to do those things. Why? Because God commands that we do those things. And although I do want you to see and believe that this is the classic historic Christian position about the unborn, because it is, if you don't believe this, or if you have problems with this, or other, if you disagree, I want to be clear, you are welcome here, okay? You cannot, you're not allowed, okay, to leave here to say, well, I don't really know if, I'm, if I believe in all of this stuff about the unborn and I just wasn't welcomed here. That is not true. You are welcomed here. And just like all of us, we are all struggling in different ways to figure things out. We want to figure things out together. So you are welcome here. You might not believe in Jesus at all. You may have, I don't know, been brought here by somebody who just kept begging you to come and you finally assented and here you are and you don't know what you believe about any of this we want you to keep coming because we we welcome you and we will love you no matter what jesus welcomed infants brephos born and unborn he calls them to himself he says let them come to me and he blesses them and he uses them as a metaphor for all of us, that we must receive the kingdom in the same way that a child does, with trust, with, with hope, in dependence, knowing that we are hopeless on our own, looking to God for our needs to be met, trusting in him with knowledge that we cannot save ourselves, with courage and boldness to do what he tells us to do.
Jesus saves, and he forgives all who come to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for blessing us with your word. We pray that you would help us to trust your word. Lord, I pray for those of us, uh, many who are utterly convinced of these truths that we just um, took a look at this morning. I pray, God, that we would be humble and yet bold and clear. And Lord, we, we pray that our life team would be extremely effective at serving and coming alongside those moms who need it and those babies who are in desperate need of help and those families who are in the fight, who are adopting, who are giving foster care. Lord, I pray that in this church there would be a movement of yours, that there would be children adopted, that there would be uh, foster parents who would open up their homes. Lord, I pray for November the 7th and that this state would vote no to issue one, that unborn children would be given life and would be protected. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who uh, may feel upset, angry, uh, confused. I pray that they would know that they are loved no matter what they believe about this and that they are welcomed here. I pray that everyone here would trust in you, Jesus, would come out of the darkness and into the light by the power of your Holy Spirit, who alone can move in our hearts and make dead people come alive. Holy Spirit, would you do that even now? And Lord, hear us. Father, hear us as we pray according to how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.